Hello and welcome to the SSP Weekly Podcast, where we dissect security and foreign policy stories from this week, and we talk about life in D.C. We are your hosts, Gareth Smythe and Miriam Pasternak. We are the directors of the Georgetown University Precision Guided Podcast. And we are very excited that you tuned in today. In today's episode, we have two stories for you. First, we have an update on government spending only made more complicated by Kevin McCarthy's ouster as Speaker of the House. And second, we're talking about the renewal of tensions between Serbia and Kosovo. To help explain this, I interviewed Robert Shala, a fellow Georgetown student and Kosovo native. Good morning, Gareth. Miriam, great morning. <laughs> it really is. Um, welcome back to episode two of SSP Weekly. I am very excited to hear what you have for me today because it's been an eventful week to say the least. Oh man, I'm already tired just thinking about it. Um, but before we begin, we just want to thank everyone that listened to episode one, mm-hmm. which yes. was last week, yeah. last Friday. We were delighted by the response. Absolutely. Um, and uh, you forced us to uh, consider having to do this for the next several weeks in a row. (laughs) So thank you again for your support and we hope this provides value. Yes, that was an important note. Okay, Gareth, the government didn't shut down. Uh, But. (laughs) Yeah, not technically, you're right. (laughs) But uh, something crazy happened Tuesday. So of course our first story is about the Kevin McCarthy situation let's call it that and then I have a story about some trouble in the Balkans um, and what that means for international security but we'll get to that Gareth please tell me what's going on Um, so this is a follow-on to the great episode we had with Christian Trotti last week where he broke down for us the impact of a government shutdown to national security, um, of a continuing resolution to national security. Uh, and so I really wish that he were here today to be responsible to, to provide further insights. But as you said, Miriam, the government did not shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, a deal was reached, surprisingly, yeah. Saturday night. We all anticipated that it was going to shut down. People were, were, were doing, they were planning vacations. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, federal agencies had given notice that yeah. the government was likely to be shut down. Uh, I know that a lot of my colleagues um, kind of, you know, throughout the government were prepared to be furloughed. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was quite serious. And then kind of surprisingly, and I, I read some reports that even the White House was surprised that, you yeah. know, a deal had been re- reached. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the measure that was passed over the weekend, funds the federal government through November 17th. But, unfortunately, uh, from my perspective, um, that stopgap measure did not include money for Ukraine. And you have now some Republicans uh, voicing opposition Mm -hmm. to providing future funding, uh, both in November and then, you know, when eventually a new fiscal year um, spending bill is passed. Now, obviously... You know, when we talked to Christian last week, we hadn't even contemplated that, you know, that could have been an issue. Right. Uh, you know, we assumed that kind of the, the deal that had been worked out between Congress and the White House, some form of that deal would be the the measure that was passed. Uh, now, with regard to Ukraine, the Biden administration sent 
that supplemental funding request to Congress in August that would have included another $24 billion in military, humanitarian, and financial assistance to Ukraine. Uh, but as I said, the, the bill uh, didn't include any Ukraine funding. It also didn't include any funding for border security, which was the deal that everyone thought was going to exist, right? This border security funding for Ukraine funding. Now, I, I did think it was interesting that uh, in the Senate Republicans, right, so you have Minority Leader Mitch McConnell come out and say that, you know, Senate Republicans remain committed to helping our friends on the front lines in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of been a staunch supporter this whole time of kind of reminding Congress of, of the importance of, of this assistance. Um, but the House GOP conference is, is quite different. Yeah. Um, McCarthy's office didn't offer any response uh, to a request for comment after uh, the bill had been passed regarding the Ukraine funding. Uh, it was reported publicly that he had been open to including Ukraine funding in the in the stopgap bill, but was unable to finalize a deal with that language in time with some of the more conservative members of, of his caucus. It was interesting. He was on Face the Nation on CBS discussing the bill on Sunday and said that um, before any Ukraine aid gets through the Congress, uh, the border funding would have to be addressed and a deal on the on that border issue would have to be addressed. Yeah. Right. As kind of the as the first step to providing any more funding um, for Ukraine. And so, you know, kind of going into the week, mm -hmm. this was the deal that everyone was expecting to be discussed. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden McCarthy was no longer speaker. Right? Yeah. He became the first speaker to be removed from office. Yeah. Um, and so interestingly enough, kind of all of the uh, negotiations that he had been doing this week are, are called into question, right? And so now it's unclear like what the road forward is going to be on Ukraine funding or even funding the government, right? Yeah. One thing I read, which I'd love your comment on, is of course this is unprecedented that a speaker is vote is ousted, is voted out as speaker. But not only is it unprecedented, it it is not usually a legal tool that they have. It was something that was implement, introduced and implemented by the Freedom Caucus. So that was earlier this year. They wanted to have that tool to kick him out, potentially, which I I don't think that people have been talking about. I mean, even as you said, we weren't considering it last week, that this was even an option. So it seems as, as if they've had something in their backhand for quite a while. Well, I, I think it's really interesting. If, if you look at the last three Republican speakers of the House, yeah. right? We had Kevin McCarthy, we had Paul Ryan, mm -hmm. we had John Boehner. All three were pushed out uh, you know, kind of informally, unofficially, mm -hmm. um, and then Kevin McCarthy formally, officially pushed out by the more conservative members or the more kind of you know yeah. right wing members of of the House GOP conference. Um, and so, as you said, right, uh, Matt Gates and and others in the Freedom Caucus, uh, when uh, Kevin McCarthy became speaker. After multiple ballots in January, one of the conditions for eventually supporting his ascendancy to speaker was to allow only one member of the House to put forward a, a motion to vacate, yeah. right? Which, of course, it um, starts the formal vote to remove the speaker from office, right? Previously, the threshold had been much higher. Yeah. And so, you know, in, in kind of the reporting around this issue, you see that, you know, the reason why these Freedom Caucus members like, um, like Matt Gates wanted to have this provision in place is to do exactly this, right? As yeah. a way to kind of hold 
uh, former Speaker McCarthy's feet to the fire. Um, and, I mean, because of that, his speakership kind of was always on this tenuous basis because sure. at any one time, yeah. one disaffected member of, of the majority caucus could institute this, um, this provision. And so, you know, let's think for a second about what the House has to accomplish mm -hmm. before the November 17th deadline for another government shutdown. Yeah, it's new crunch time. Okay. So here's everything the House has to accomplish, okay. right? And imagine if this was on your to-do list yeah. for the next couple of weeks. Yeah. The House has to elect a speaker. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, one of uh, McCarthy's allies from North Carolina was made the speaker pro tempore, mm -hmm. and his responsibility is to lead the House in a speaker vote. Uh, his office has already announced that they will hold kind of a candidate forum, the GOP a conference will hold a candidate forum in, on Tuesday next week and then vote for speaker on Wednesday. And there are a couple of candidates that it seems like members are coalescing around. Um, the one that I've heard as being the most viable is uh, Steve Scalise from Louisiana, who's the current House Majority Leader. But again, I mean, you know, it took uh, former Speaker McCarthy multiple, you know, multiple public rounds of voting and a lot of compromising. Uh, to be made speaker, and, and frankly, I don't know why anyone would want to be speaker with this one vote, or you know, w one member motion to vacate provision yes. hanging over them like a sword of Damocles, right? I mean, it, as we've seen, this trend of Republican speakers being removed by their own um, yeah. conference, it's it's a difficult job to 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 govern, um, you know, with so many different angles of, mm -hmm. of policy preferences. Okay, so here's here's what the House has to do: they have to elect a speaker pass a funding bill, work out any differences with the Democratic-controlled Senate, and get the funding signed into law before the November 17th deadline, mm. right? And think about it. If you, you know, let's say Miriam becomes the Speaker of the House, and actually uh, anyone can become the Speaker of the House. It doesn't have to be a member of the Congress. So if you're interested, I can connect I you to I bet you people. need to be a citizen, don't you? I, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> uh, you might do it better. <clears throat> but anyhow... Any speaker that gets put into place will immediately have the same pressures that Speaker McCarthy did, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to be kind of paddling between yeah. conservatives pushing for sharp budget cuts yeah. and, pol and further policy concessions and Democrats who see no reason to, re to renegotiate spending levels with, you know, the Republican majority, right? Mm -hmm. They want the implementation of the deal that Speaker McCarthy and President Biden reached earlier in the year. What is the GOP's... I mean, if it were you, who, what kind of person do you want for a month and a half at yeah. least to sit in that role? You want someone that has, you know, a, a credibility with both camps um, to begin to negotiate some of these deals. I mean, again, I think that the pressures that Speaker McCarthy was dealing with were intense. And I don't know uh, if there's anyone out there that could do it differently or 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 better yeah. um you know yeah. we'll see yeah uh, and what's been really interesting is to seeing the coming together that's happened in the senate between senate democrats and senate republicans um and then kind of bringing it back to where we started particularly on this ukraine aid yeah right so the pentagon has said that it has about five billion dollars left in reserves to continue to send military assistance to kiev even with Congress's failure to include more funding for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, 
and so we'll see, you know, as the Pentagon continues to kind of um, implement that funding that it's been given and that's reserved, uh, you know, I think we'll see uh, kind of as we get closer to November, more calls that, you know, the aid is running low and the need is still high. What's been really interesting is, is um, the reaction in Europe, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, most European leaders remain staunchly supportive of Ukraine. We had some of that election uh, stuff in Slovakia. Yeah. And so, you know, there might be some implications there. But, you know, the EU is negotiating that $50 billion euro, um, su- you know, support package for, for the country. Yeah. Um, but I think Europe is really worried about what's happening here in, in Washington. Yeah. Um, and, you know, while that EU tranche funding would be really beneficial as a stopgap for the U.S. to figure out um, where it stands on this issue, um, that support funding is tied to the EU's longer term budget. And that hasn't been worked out either, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the EU's dealing with many of its own regionalization pressures. I thought it notable, lastly, that, you know, Biden called a bunch of European allies and kind of brought in into that conversation Canada and Japan, um, kind of trying to reassure European allies that the United States continues to support uh, Ukraine, quote, as long as it takes, right, which has kind of uh, been the the watchword of of, um, of of the executive branch of the government. Yeah. Um, but the, 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 the fact that he felt the need to do that, I think, telegraphs a lot of concern internationally mm-hmm. about where the U.S. stands on this issue. So, you know, a lot of dynamics that are going to play out over the next week. We'll have a lot to talk about next week in terms of um, future speakers. But, um, but as Christian Trotty said last week, this dysfunction has a structural issue, yeah. right? Uh, and really complicates our ability to achieve our national security goals. So, so definitely something worth uh, worth watching this week. Yeah, so much is depending on the U.S. right now, especially from a U- European vantage point. And that actually kind of ties into what I want to talk talk about today, because I want to talk about Kosovo and oh, Serbia. Yeah, and Serbia is actually a great example of a nation that currently is trying to balance, which. Uh, which team they're playing for, so to speak, uh, one being um, Russia and the other being the European Union. What I want to talk about today is some recent news in Kosovo, because on September 24th, around 30 armed Serbian men um, who are part of the minority of Kosovo barricaded themselves in a Serbian Orthodox monastery near a village called Banska. Banska is a village consisting of primarily ethnic Serbians who reject rule from Kosovo's ethnic Albanian-dominated government. I know that that's a lot. That's a lot of words. That's a lot of Serbian, Albanian, ethnically minor, minority groups. I hope you're tracking. We have three overall um, state players. Let me just break it down. Kosovo is uh, what we're talking about. It's a very small nation, about around two million people population. It's sandwiched between two neighbors. So this is all, this, this was Yugoslavia back in the day, right? Mm. Around 30 years ago. Kosovo has Serbia to the north and Albania to the south. It's sandwiched between the two. Kosovo consists mainly of ethnic Albanians. Albanians, most of them are Muslim, and they speak Albanian. Um, in 1998 to 1999, there was the war, of course, where ethnic Albanians fought ethnic Serbs and the Yugoslavian government. They wanted independence, and they got it. 
NATO intervened um, to protect to protect the Albanian majority, and the conflict was resolved. And in 2008, so nine years later, they formally gained independence. So Kosovo is 15 years old today in 2023. It's a young nation, and Serbia still does not recognize Kosovo as um, as Kosovar territory, as non-Serbian. Okay, so back to the news and why they're important. 30 ethnic Serbian men in Kosovo shooting at Kosovar police. Um, and this was done in an area which has a lot of Serbian minorities. It's in the northern part of Kosovo, which is more Serbian. They hid in a Serbian monastery, which is also interesting because there's like a religious aspect of the conflict. Obviously, there's different religions. Serbians are Christians. Albanians are um, traditionally, or the majority are, are Muslim. And then a few days later, I think it was on the 29th of September, Kosovo's president, Vyoza Osmani, she accused Serbia of attacking Kosovo, essentially. She said that this was an attack on the, on the country and that the Serbian president, Aleksandar Vucic, was behind the shootout, these 30 men. Okay, so why are we interested in these news? Um, because it can seem like a relatively small attack. There's a few reasons why we're interested or why I'm interested. First of all, this is the largest act of violence in Kosovo's history. Granted, it's not a long history because it established independence, as I said, in 2008. But still, there hasn't been this, this level of violence um, between groups before. Secondly... The attack was conducted by 30 heavily armed Serbian men who were carrying weaponry normally attributed to military or paramilitary groups. That, of course, indicates that there's some relation with the Serbian government. Of course, Serbia has denied all allegations. So when I saw these news, I was like, okay, what does this, what does this mean? Um, understanding the significance of this of course, requires a little bit of background. I know that. Um, it's not everyone who's completely um, tracking what's going on in, in post-Yugoslavia. But there's been tensions in the region between Serbia and Kosovo since 1999. Um, regardless of, of them claiming independence or not, the tensions have been rising. In May of this year, 2023, Dozens of NATO peacekeepers were actually injured after they were attacked by ethnic Serbs. I don't know if you remember, uh, but this was also in northern Kosovo. So, well, the, the, the explanation in May was that, that um, these Serbians just refused to recognize Albanian mayors taking office in this part of the region. Serbia, who is led by its president, Aleksandar Vucic, is stuck between multiple fronts, I would say. On the one hand, he has an internal domestic pressure of keeping his promise of securing Kosovo as Serbian territory. Like he will never accept Kosovo as anything else but Serbian. And he has nationalistic supporters who voted for him because of that. It also, Serbia also has an interesting relationship with Russia as Serbia is one of Russia's traditionally closest allies in Europe. And meanwhile, Vucic has publicly stated that Serbia is against the Russian both annexation of Crimea and also um, the invasion uh, in 2022 of Ukraine because of the political European pressure of him saying that. He couldn't support that 
there that would not fly and this makes sense right um in serbia's view its territorial integrity was violated um illegally violated by kosovo becoming an independent country so in serbia's view defending ukraine's right to control could be its way of communicating that serbia should do the same right serbia believes that kosovo rightly is serbian so kosovo can't claim independence from them just as Russia can't claim that Crimea or other parts of Ukraine suddenly are Russian. I think that's the background and the rationale. So why were 30 Serbian men carrying military weaponry shooting Kosovar police officers, and why is this important from an international security perspective? These are some of the topics that I discussed with our fellow security studies um, student, Robert Chala, our colleague. He is born and raised in what is now known as Kosovo, um, but I'll let him introduce himself. Do you want to hear what he had to say? Absolutely. I love Robert. I'm Robert Schala. I am an SSP grad student. I was born uh, and raised in Pristina, uh, in what is today now the Republic of Kosovo. In the past, I think I was born in one of the versions of, uh, many versions of Yugoslavia, uh, 94. Could you tell us how, how it is growing up in what became Kosovo? So growing up, I think there's, I would definitely divide it into different, different, uh, let's say, times or, or, or different eras, mm -hmm. even though it's a very short period of time. My early life, I was born in 94. Mm -hmm. So the first few years of my life were uh, living as a kid under a very, very uh, oppressive regime mm -hmm. by uh, Milosevic. My family was... Uh, targeted uh, ever since the 90s uh, because of my grandfather, was one of the first people to uh, revolt against Milosevic in the Trepcha miners' strike uh, to fight for the uh, Albanian rights and the right to uh, autonomy, which was taken away by Milosevic. And so that certainly, you know, I'm, I was spared by my early years and my childhood of not being able to remember that a lot, but um, I guess that's the that's the first era. And the second one is growing up right after the war. Mm -hmm. I have great positive memories of that. Uh, a lot of optimism, um, a new opportunity for Albanians, for Kosovars, uh, a new a new let's say era for uh, our our politics. Uh, very interesting to grow up in that environment. I would say. My childhood was very, very, uh, very active in the sense um, that I got to play a lot around mm. outside <laughs> with friends, spend a lot of time in internet cafes. That was a really big thing. Mm -hmm. And it was this uh, huge, huge uh, uh, influx of Western media in the mm. sense of music, movies, art, and things like that. So that was great. And then um, in the end, I ended up starting a company and that has its own its own challenges but i would say my life in kosovo is very similar to what 
maybe others experience and live in the rest of the Balkans. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We are this year marking 15 years of, of independence. Uh, Kosovo got its independence in 2008. Mm -hmm. And so um, could you explain a little bit about before and after the independence. How big of a difference um, did it make for you as a citizen back home and your family? So in, in my mind, we gained our independence in 1999 mm -hmm. uh, when NATO decided to intervene and, um, and save our people. Mm -hmm. I think that 2008 kind of, for me at least, um, marked a point that there was all of this effort that was done previously by our families, by the people that have struggled and given their lives uh, to, to, to liberate Kosovo. And I felt like that was a sort of culmination point or the crowning, uh, the, the cherry on top of everything that was done up until that point uh, of all of those efforts. And so um, I would say there, there is there is a, a, a contrast between that. I think up until 2008, that was, there was a lot more optimism. Mm -hmm. But then 2008 and forward, uh, for many reasons, I think that optimism started to wane. That, of course, leads me to the theme of today, which mm -hmm. is the, the recent events and news surrounding Kosovo and the shootouts that have been happening. I guess my question is, why do you think this is happening right now? Just an easy little question for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think... Let's start from the attack, right? Mm -hmm. If we look at the way it was organized and conducted, the amount of weaponry, the supplies, the logistics of it all, point to the willingness to create an armed conflict certainly between the Kosovo authorities and at least that military group. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they had all kinds of weaponry, including, you know, mortars, anti-tank mines, uh, hundreds of, of um, uh, military uniforms and camouflage and so on and so forth. They even had a false flag car, an armored vehicle and so on. This This points to... This points to something similar to uh, at an attempt at a at an internal insurgency, or something, of to that effect. Is is this kind of um, attack or incident something that has happened before in Kosovar history since two thousand and eight? Is this a recurring phenomenon? This is not a recurring phenomenon, not at this scale. Mm -hmm. This is something very very new uh, and unique. Um, it's very strange to have this sort of uh, thing happen because it really creates a lot of questions um, that I don't think even Kosovo and maybe even the international community don't have the exact answers to as of the um, recording of this podcast. Mm -hmm. What is interesting is that the timing Obviously, whoever was behind the attack has the intention and the goal of destabilizing and starting an armed conflict in the Balkans. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is, who does this really uh, work? 
who does this serve? Yeah, who, who has a motive in who this? Who has a motive in this? It's not entirely clear, although there are certainly two two major directions that we can point, I guess, fingers to based on the evidence. One is the Serbian government somehow implicated is somehow implicated into all of this. And two, just knowing the activities of Russian intelligence in the Balkans and their goals to destabilize the region, Serbia and Alexander Vucic, unfortunately, have uh, created an extensive alliance with the Russian intelligence services, Mm -hmm. with the GRU, the military intelligence. Um, They are present in the region, present in Serbia. And so they have some sort of a deal with the devil. And it is unclear if the action that happened was done in concert, uh, or maybe there is maybe even even a... disagreement between the two groups. What, what is interesting is that when the armed group um, entered the monastery and they, you know, they locked themselves up there and they tried to fight from, from the church, the Serbian Orthodox Church in Kosovo, which traditionally coordinates its messaging with the Serbian government, came out and immediately said, like, these people are, uh, they've entered the church. This is unacceptable. Uh, they have denounced the attack. So that's a very interesting, um, very interesting thing to see. Yeah. Uh, not to remove blame maybe from Serbia, but to kind of indicate maybe there's a third party um, at play. But that is pure, pure speculation on my... Um, that, that leads me to my next question, which has to do with religion. How tied are religious institutions um, with both the Serbian and the Kosovar government, and how big of a role does religion play, if any? In Kosovo, religion is generally very separated from daily politics. Mm-hmm. We do not have religious political parties. It's a very secular state. Mm-hmm. And uh, religion is not a big part uh, of the identity of the Albanians. Most of the Albanian population is Muslim, but the Albanian identity is not tied to religion. Mm-hmm. The national identity is tied to the language yeah. and to the shared history. In Serbia, it's a little bit different. The Serbian national identity is strongly tied to their religion, the Orthodox Church. They are a Slavic peoples, but their defining characteristic and difference between other Slavic peoples is the religion um, that they have uh, and that they follow. Hmm. And religion in Serbia is very tightly close to politics and has historically been uh, that way as well. So, for example, when that, whenever there's big decisions that need to be made politically, whenever there's like a big talk between Kosovo and Serbia, you will see Aleksandar Vucic you know, go to the to 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 the monastery and the l- 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 uh, religious leaders to kind of talk about it. Kosovo, whenever it's talked about in Serbia in the political circles, is also talked about from the religious perspective, mm. like the religious connotation that Kosovo has and the religious importance that Kosovo has to to Serbia, hearkening back to the myths and legends of the Serbian people, and and so religion is very very tightly integrated in that sense. My question to you is is a more personal one, is um, what does it mean to you to be Kosovar? 
what does it what is the significance of Kosovo for you um, and what do you th see as the best case scenario in the future for the protection of Kosovo so as a as a Kosovar like most of my peers most of my friends my family members we believe that we are a peoples who belong to the nations of Europe. Mm -hmm. We believe that we have a right to exist just as any other nation. Um, and we believe that we've worked hard and will continue to work hard uh, for that right. And to prove to the rest of the community that um, we are what we stand for. I think it's important for Kosovo in the future to, in terms of its security, to ally itself with the NATO countries. Mm -hmm. That is a long-term uh, aspiration of Kosovo. Whether that happens or how it happens, I'm not sure, but that is the direction that uh, Kosovar has, Kosovars have. Robert, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today and telling us both about your personal history and about the security implications for Kosovo, the young nation that it is. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. So that was the interview with Rob. I certainly learned a lot about the conflict in Kosovo. This conflict is a good gauging point for what is going on with Russia and the power balance between the West and Russia. So a very interesting international conflict, which might at first glance seem uh, minuscule, but actually is a good indicator of, of balancing powers in the region um, and on a larger scale. Yeah, I learned a lot from Rob's perspective. Uh, and I really think that's the value of kind of the strong international cohort, cohort yeah. that we have in SSP. For sure, because, yeah. Because, you know, we learn about these important concepts in the abstract or, you know, on the historical record. And yet you have, you know, scholars that come and learn here that can provide that um, kind of the individual, the lived experience. And mm -hmm. so I really appreciate him, you know, coming on and, and telling us that story. You know, you made the point about how this is playing out between kind of the West writ large and kind of the the Russian former dominated sphere in, in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. Now, I see a lot of parallels between the flare ups between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Right? Yeah. Like we have uh, we're seeing more and more that the system appears to be unstable and you have these flashpoints of old tensions. Yeah. Right. That the end of history was supposed to usher in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Milosevic and, and the Dayton compromise and kind of, you know, the height of U.S. diplomacy and, and the height of kind of this um, optimism around NATO's ability to provide a peacekeeping force and, you know, win from the air without having boots on the ground. And, and um, yet we're seeing a lot of these things kind of rhyme in history. And so uh, all of these things add uh, tensions uh, and responsibilities to a NATO-EU-US that is trying to adjudicate this crisis in Ukraine. Um, so, I mean, it's certainly a lot of developments in, in Europe here um, in over the last several weeks. Absolutely. 
this wraps up our two stories for the day. Again, intertwined once you uh, analyze them a little bit. Um, certainly interesting from a security standpoint, both of them. Both of them. Yeah, we should also mention that today is actually kind of a significant day or date. Hmm. Uh, today is the 6th of October. Mm-hmm. And um, that marks the 50-year anniversary for the Yom Kippur War in oh, Israel, wow. which I uh, I learned a couple of days ago. I um, I thought that was uh, worth mentioning. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I guess that's why they launched Golda, the movie, right around this time, right? Oh, is there a movie about Golda Meir? Yes, the new Helen Mirren. Have you not watched Helen Mirren? I'll have to see that. No, Are we you have. Look, wait, we should go this weekend. We should bring the podcast it's there. In DC. It's in theaters. No, that's illegal. <laughs> we shouldn't record. But I know in, I we will not be doing that. We will but not we, be doing we that. We will pay tickets to go to cinema. Yes. Um, For all the AMC executives listening to exactly this Our, podcast. <laughs> um, okay, that's really interesting. We should go. Yeah, my grandmother said it was mesmerizing. Oh, well, that is the opinion that I want to hear. Exactly. Um, On that happy note, we want to say thank you for today. Thank you for uh, chiming in and listening. Yes. Thank you, Robert Shala, for coming on. And Miriam, thank you. Thank you, Gareth. See you next week. 